Well, good morning again, everybody. Welcome once again to Hillcrest. To those of you who are visiting with us in our online community, welcome. Whether you're at Facebook Live or on our website, hillcrestchurch.com, we're so thrilled that you're tuning in with us this morning. And a special good morning to those of you over at our Spanish Trail campus. We love each and every one of you and have been praying for you already this morning. And we're praying for you even now that the Word of God would come through crystal clear and that God would be a blessing to you as we're praying He'll be a blessing to us. Now, across both campuses, who would testify they're ready to get into God's Word this morning? Would you say amen? amen. We're in Colossians chapter 1. If you're new to Hillcrest today, uh, we um, are in the middle uh, of a series of messages, the first time I've ever done a comprehensive series, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, one of the most important uh, letters of Paul and also one of the most overlooked. It's uh, a bigger first cousin, Ephesians, tends to get most of the time in churches. The two letters, if you read them together, are very, very similar in structure and in tone and in subject matter. Uh, with this exception, in Colossians, you see a much greater emphasis on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Many scholars who've studied Colossians for years would testify that Colossians may well be the most Christ-centered book in the whole Bible. That's why we've entitled this series of messages, Christ Alone. And this morning, we want to dig deep, having established a foundation in terms of the identity of Jesus last Sunday in what I believe is the most important passage in Colossians and why, fundamentally, Colossians is even in the Bible. Today, we want to move from that with it as our foundation and talk about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was listening to the radio as I was driving my car this past week, and I heard a news story that detailed the account of a 90-year-old woman in France who had lived in the same house for decades and decades and decades out in the French countryside. She was in her 90s, and it reached a point she could no longer maintain and care for the house, and so she had decided to put it up for sale and move in to an assisted living facility. Along with that, she didn't have a lot of room in the new place coming up, so she decided she was just going to auction off her contents as well. And so she had a big auction. One of the things that were auctioned was a small picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that had hung in her kitchen for years and years. It hung in a very obscure location, hanging right over a simple two-burner hot plate. The woman was asked where she got it, and she had no recollection of where it came from or even how long she'd had it. An appraiser happened to be walking by when that sale was happening uh, of her goods in her home, and he looked at it and immediately recognized it, asked if he could have it appraised. Come to find out it was an Italian masterpiece dating from the 13th century, Appraised value, $6.5 million. Don't you wish that would happen to you? <laughs> if there's any one piece of theology we can take from the never-ending episodes of the Antiques Roadshow, it's that sometimes it is possible to overlook the value of something that you possess that legitimately belongs to you. And that's true when it comes to the many spiritual blessings 
of our lives, things that we possess legitimately as children of the living God. One of those blessings is a gift that the Bible calls, would you write it down, reconciliation. Reconciliation. And this is the subject to which Paul now turns as we continue to unpack the incredible spiritual truth found in the letter to the Colossians. Paul's now going to move his discussion, as I said a moment ago, from the identity of Jesus to the work of Jesus, the accomplishment of Jesus, from the person of Christ to the salvation of Christ through his work on the cross. In a word, that's what we call reconciliation. And as we get into it this morning, let's see what Paul has to say about it. Verse 19 of Colossians chapter 1, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, that's about a three-message series just in that one paragraph right there. And there's far more in there than I have time to unpack in the next half hour this morning. And before we begin to pull some of these uh, scriptural tendons off the bone this morning, let me just begin, first of all, by identifying what we mean when we talk about reconciliation. It's an important biblical concept, but there may be some confusion, as there oftentimes is, regarding many of the issues of salvation in the Bible and the important theological words of the Bible. I think it's very important that we understand what we're talking about when we speak of reconciliation, because most believe that it is the principal theme of the whole Bible. I mean, if you take the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, creation to fall, to the work of salvation that takes place from Genesis chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, what is God up to? God is in the business of reconciling a lost humanity back to himself. And so it makes sense to say if you're going to boil the theme of the Bible down to to one principal concept, you'd have a hard time doing better than saying the Bible is about reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Well, the simplest way to understand it is that reconciliation is the action by which enemies become friends. It's the action by which a condition of hostility is replaced by a condition of peace. So the term reconciliation, we begin with the understanding that it implies the existence of a hostile relationship. You don't need to reconcile two people who are walking side by side and skipping hand in hand. The reason that you need reconciliation is that there is a separateness. There has been a falling out, so to speak. And reconciliation happens when something changes in that hostile relationship. In fact, that's what the word reconciliation actually means. It's a verb that means to change or to exchange. And so where there is reconciliation, there has been brought about 
a change. We have had our condition of hostility changed to a condition of peace. We have exchanged anger for acceptance, hostility for peace. And that's the very thing that we most need, I think, in our relationship with God. And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to provide. And that's why we're calling the message today the supreme ministry of Christ. Reconciliation is the supreme ministry of our supreme Savior. Now, what I want to do this morning is just follow right along with Paul because what he does in this little paragraph is give us five aspects, five dimensions of reconciliation that everybody who walks with the Lord Jesus needs to identify and recognize. Y'all ready to run this morning? Say amen. Here's the first thing. Notice the agent of reconciliation, the agent of reconciliation. By agent, of course, I'm speaking of the one whose action accomplishes reconciliation as it comes to a, 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 a relationship with God. And, of course, most people here would immediately identify the agent of reconciliation as our Lord Jesus Christ, and you would be right. The agent of reconciliation is the same Lord Jesus that Paul's uh, taken links in the preceding verses in order to explain to us in a comprehensive kind of way. You remember that Jesus, don't you? Jesus, who is God the Son. Jesus, who is Lord of creation. Jesus, who is the center of the universe. Jesus, who is the head of the church. That Jesus, which everybody should remember from last fact, if you remember it, say amen. Say amen even if you don't remember it because that will make your pastor happy. That Jesus, the bigness of the one who is God the Son. He says in verse 19, as if all of that stuff we unpacked last week wasn't enough, he continues in verse 19, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to what? To reconcile to himself all things. Now here again, this is another statement that speaks directly to the fact that Jesus is God. It speaks to the deity of Christ. God was pleased for all his what? fullness to dwell in Jesus. And once again, this is a reason why salvation is not a matter of Christ plus anything. What you going to add to all the fullness of God? You can't add anything to that. Christ is all you need because in Christ is all of the eternal God. Amen. So you can't add anything to that. Christianity is not about Christ plus. It's about Christ alone. And the only thing that distinguishes God the Father from God the Son is a physical body. That's the only thing. So Paul's going to make that even more clear when we get over to chapter 2. In fact, let me give you a foreshadowing. Colossians 2 and verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Let me ask you, y'all still with me? Say amen. Is there any way to misunderstand that? There's no way. Jesus is all God, and frankly, He had to be. I had a guy come up to me some time ago when I was preaching about this subject, 
or actually it was right before I was to preach about this subject because he came up to me on a Sunday morning and he said, I saw a bumper sticker this week and you know what it said? And I said, no. And he said, it just simply said, Jesus is God. Do you believe that? I said, I sure do. The reason I believe it is because it's all over the Bible and it's exactly what the apostolic preachers of the first century preached. So we do believe that. And frankly, that has to be true. If that's not true, we have no reason being here today. You all know that, don't you? Because we've got no sacrifice for sin if God doesn't become flesh. Because a sinful human being can't die in the place of another sinful human being. You have to have sinless God as the sacrifice on the cross. So the sacrifice of the sins of the world had to be borne by a sinless substitute. And that's why God himself came in human form. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, are y'all still with me? Say amen. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was God coming down. God came in Christ. So that's who he is. God the Son, sinless Savior. He and he alone is the agent of our reconciliation. Romans 5 and 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received what? Say it out loud. Reconciliation. Secondly, I want you to see the need for reconciliation. Why is it even important? Which gets to the question, why did God need to come down at all? Paul tells the Colossians in verse 21 here, chapter 1, and he says to all of us by extension, of course, that reconciliation is necessary for you who once were what? Alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. You see, one of the reasons that reconciliation is such an important biblical theme is because of the presence of sin that has created this condition of hostility between human beings and a holy God. Listen, I've said that many times in church through the years, and, and a lot of times people will say, well, preach, I'll tell you one thing. I may not be perfect, but I have no hostility against God. I'm not hostile with God. Well, the Bible would counter that in a nanosecond. Because if you don't know Christ, can I just say it? Not only are you in a condition of hostility with God, God is in a condition of hostility with you. We call it the wrath of God. And that's true because of sin. That's why Paul will tell the Ephesians that before we were saved, Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and were by nature, what? Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And if we're the, ob can I just say it? If we are the object of the wrath of God, that, brothers and sisters, is the very definition of a condition of hostility. And that's the human dilemma. That's the way we come in to the world. That's why you need to be saved. That's why you need to be forgiven. Because let me just say, if you die in that condition, under the wrath of God directed, not at you personally, but toward the sinful condition that marks you, with whom we, he can have no fellowship because of his holiness, if you die in that condition, 
You'll bear the full brunt of the wrath of God when you stand at the judgment before God. And of course, that's bad news because that means an eternity separated from God in a place Jesus called hell. That's exactly why the first thing that God did when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, when they went their own way instead of obeying God, was the first thing He did. He cast them out of the garden. Because he couldn't walk in fellowship with them anymore. They'd sinned. And that's the way all of us come into the world. In Adam. Separated from God. Under the wrath of God. That's why you need to be forgiven. And the only place you can find it is in the cross of Jesus Christ. All have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And speaking of where you can find that, that takes us to the third dimension of reconciliation, which is the means of reconciliation. Jesus is the agent. Sin creates the need. And then what is the means? How does it come about? Well, in a word, would you write it down? The cross. Aren't you thankful for the cross of Christ? Paul says that in his death, Christ, verse 20, was making peace by the blood of His cross. Did you all see that? Say amen. And again, you flip back over to Ephesians chapter 2. He'll say in Ephesians 2.13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you, and we might add parenthetically, all y'all, who once were what? Far off, have been what? brought near by the blood of Christ. There's the means. There's the means of reconciliation. Reconciliation is bound up in that verse. We were once far off. Now we've been brought near to God. How has that happened? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 of Ephesians 2, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let me just pause there for a minute if I can. Because I don't want there to be any confusion. I think we need to understand something very important. Because when it comes to the cross, and listen to me all the way. Are you all listening up? Amen. What matters so much is not the blood of Christ but the death of Christ. Christ could bleed intermittently all day long. If it doesn't die, we don't have a sacrifice. So Paul will elaborate that here in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, there it is. So don't leave here this morning saying, well, I'm just, I'm I'm confident I'm not hostile with God. If you're lost, you are. And there it is. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, say the last three words with me, together, by his what? Death. That's right. So we sing there's power in the blood, right? And there is power in the blood, but only to the extent that the loss of blood led to the death of Christ, Because it's the death of Christ that provides an atonement that we might be forgiven 
of our sin. And if there's any confusion, Paul clears it up in Romans 5. Watch Romans 5 and verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. For while we were still sinners, Christ, what? Died for us. Now, logic would dictate that that's a great injustice because Christ was sinless. I mean, have you ever thought about that? If anybody should die for sin, it ought to be the sinner. You ought to die for it. I ought to die for it. That, by the way, is why you ought not dwell too long on God being fair with you. You don't want God to be fair with you. I've said that many times. Because if he's fair with you, you're gone. You're just gone. No, you want God to deal with you not on the basis of fairness, on the basis of grace. Amen. That's why he sent a substitute. But we're the ones that deserve to die. You do the crime, you do the time. That's that's what law and order people often say. But this is where love and grace steps in because rather than requiring your life for your sin, God gives us a substitute And that is, of course, the sinless Son of God voluntarily laid down His life. Jesus was lifted high on the cross, becoming sin for us, taking upon Himself God's judgment. It was Jesus that bore the wrath of God so you wouldn't have to bear it. That's what He experienced when He died on the cross, the full brunt of the wrath of Almighty God. That's why He almost died in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why he sweat drops of blood, because he knew what was coming when the sun came up. And then nearly, if he hadn't had angels attending to him in the garden, I'm convinced he would have died in the garden. He bore the wrath of God. He saw his own reflection in the cup. Let this cup of wrath pass from me. Awesome price that was paid. And he took it for us, voluntarily laid down his life so that he could bear my judgment, take my penalty, bear my guilt. And this is what we mean when we use that big word, atonement, atonement. That's basically almost a synonym for reconciliation because in reconciliation, we become, it's like the first couple of words of atonement at one is the first two words of atonement if you separate it out and that's what happens in reconciliation we become at one with God amen that's the atonement being reconciled to God through the death of a sacrifice some time ago I was you'll find this hard to believe I was driving a little faster than I should have been Preachers are known to have lead feet. And uh, I was in my hometown while I was doing it. And a local police officer in the city where I grew up, just outside of Nashville, pulled me over. He said I was doing 61 to 45. I think it's a lie. (laughs) That's what he said. And um, he pulled me over, and he asked for my license registration. I gave it to him few minutes he came back and he said, can I just ask you one question? And I said, sure. He said, "Um, are you so-and-so's brother and gave the name of my brother? Who's a police officer? Amen. (laughs) 
I said, yeah, that's, that's my younger brother. And he handed my stuff back to me, and he said, sir, you have a nice day. And he turned and walked back to his car. I was praising the Lord in my car. I turned the, I turned the praise music up to 8 out of 10, praising the Lord for that. See, that, that just happened. Not because of anything I did, but because of a blood relationship that I had with somebody very important. And this is why when it comes to salvation, it's not what you do, it's who you know that matters. And if you don't know Jesus, at the judgment, God will declare that He doesn't know you. Depart from me. For I never knew you. Saddest words in the Bible. So that's the means by which we are brought back to God through the death of Christ. Have you trusted Jesus to save you? He's your only hope when it comes to eternity. And speaking of that, let's look forth at the result of reconciliation. I'm telling you, Paul just keeps digging us deeper and deeper and deeper in a good way. Because he reminds us here that Jesus died, verse 22, Jesus died in order to what? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the purpose of the death of Christ that results in reconciliation. Before faith in Jesus was evil, under wrath having sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but by faith, through the death of Jesus Christ, I am now presented holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Remember, what does the word reconciliation mean? To change. And there's the change right there. From evil and wrath and sin to holiness and blamelessness and purity. What a change it is. Remember that in the crucifixion, Jesus took upon himself something that was foreign to him so that you and I could take upon ourselves something that's foreign to us. Jesus took upon himself sin, which was foreign to him, so that by faith we could take upon ourselves righteousness, which is something foreign to us. That's the great exchange that takes place through the reconciliation of sinners to God through the work of Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, great memory verse. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in our place that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. See, it's that presence now that I'm walking with Jesus and that I know Jesus and that I've been saved by the power of the cross of Jesus. It's the presence of that righteous condition in me that brings about peace with God. Therefore, having been justified, saved by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that peace comes from this condition of righteousness, not that I've earned, not that I've deserved, not that I have merited, but that comes into my life as a free gift simply by the presence of Jesus Christ 
in my life. Now, many of you might say, well, here's the thing, Pastor, man, I ain't righteous. I'm not righteous. I think I sinned this morning on the way to church. Well, you probably did. And here's the thing. We're not practically 100% righteous. That ought to be our goal in life. But we're still going to sin because we're still this side of heaven. But here's the beautiful thing. God doesn't count our sinful condition against us anymore because we now have a spiritual condition of righteousness because of the presence of Christ in our life when Christ moved into our hearts by faith. God now sees that condition not of sin but of righteousness and that's what gives us access to God now and forever. We'll be 100% glorified, totally perfected when Christ comes again and we get resurrection bodies. But here's what's beautiful. God deals with us now as if all of that has actually already been done. It's as good as done. Because the Bible says what God starts in us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God will what? Carry it on to completion. Finish the work in Jesus. It's as good as done. So this is how God relates to us now even though we sin. But you've got to have the righteous presence of Jesus Christ within you for that to be the case. For God to see in you today exactly what he will see in you when we're finally glorified in heaven. And man, to know that you possess that. Somebody asked one time, what do you think the greatest emotion that God gives us is? I wonder, how would you answer that question? What is the greatest emotion? Happiness? Uh, Joy? Um, Contentment? Can I offer something for consideration? Relief. I mean, really, is there anything greater than when a doctor looks at a cancer patient and says, the cancer's gone? Or when a police officer knocks on the door and an anxious mother answers it and the police officer says, not to worry, we found your daughter. Relief is one of the greatest God-given emotions of all, and some would say even the most important emotion. Or when a defendant hears a judge swing the gavel and say, I've decided to dismiss the charges. That's the way I felt when that officer got back in his car. Relief. Man, there's nothing like it. I'm telling you, nothing should give you more relief than to know you're no longer a child of the wrath of God, but that you're at one with God, and you didn't even have to pay the price for it. God came and paid the price for you, righteousness has been given, sin has been removed, and the hostilities are forever over. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then the last thing I want you to notice is the evidence of reconciliation. How do you know that this precious gift that brings a relief like no other is actually something that belongs to you. Well, the Bible says here that God gives it to us as a free gift through the death of Christ, and he does it for a purpose, to present us unto himself holy and 
blameless and, and pure, but Paul does give a caveat in verse 23 that I think is worth a mention because it's marked by this word if. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now let me just stop there for a moment because that almost um, makes it sound like Paul is arguing that salvation is a conditional thing. In other words, you better toe the line because if you cross a line, if you sin too much, you're out. That God is somehow in the business of kicking his kids out of his family once he's brought them into the family. But can I say this morning that this really isn't so much a condition as it is an encouragement. One of the things you find, in fact, this reads like something that you'd find in Paul's or in the letter to the Hebrews, who's written by an anonymous author. But these kinds of encouragements to not bail out and to not give up and to persevere and to endure not only are found all throughout Hebrews, they're found all throughout the Apostle Paul's writings, not as a condition to keep your salvation because that's a works-based salvation. And if you could either attain your salvation by works, something that you do, or keep it by works, then really that's Christ plus, not Christ alone. And what's the point of the cross? Again, that's a very weak Savior if Jesus can't keep those whose blood he purchased. And so, uh, this is not a condition, it's an encouragement. God's done all the work. All you got to do is believe, trust as a matter of faith. And again, God has promised to finish the work that he started in us until the coming of Jesus Christ. So, what this is, is a test of genuine faith. I mean, what, what is the true test of genuine faith? How do you know that you've been reconciled to God? You don't bail out on God. That's how you know. I mean, what's the ultimate fruit of salvation? It's perseverance. It, it's staying the course. It's not shifting away from the gospel. And the Bible teaches that over and over again. True believers, those of us who've truly been reconciled to God by faith are those who continue in faith until they're not breathing anymore, until they're no longer alive. And if you don't, then your faith has been proven illegitimate. And that's what Paul is doing. He's encouraging these Christians who lived in very hostile times in the first century. It's tough to be a believer. And they're baby believers. They don't have the Bible like we have. They don't have Christian literature like we have. They don't have radio preachers like we have. They didn't have any of that stuff. They were under severe oppression amidst all kinds of errant teaching. And many of them trying to ferret out. And Paul is saying, don't veer from the true and the precious gospel because there is no other gospel. It's not found in Christ plus anything these false teachers are trying to tell you that you have to have in order to know God. The only person you have to know in order to know God is to know God the Son, who is Jesus Christ. And if you ever jettison that, you will have proven that you never really had faith at all. So don't give up, don't quit, prove yourself to be a genuine article, someone who knows God by staying the course until you're forever face to face with Him. Look at 1 John 3 and verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. 
for God's seed abides in him. That's actually the presence of Christ. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is what? Evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Everybody see that? Say amen. See, that's basically what Paul's talking about there. Prove your faith to be genuine by living righteously the righteous condition that's alive within you. So, this is a way of proving that faith is genuine. How do I know I've been reconciled to God? I never stop trusting Jesus. The question is, have you been reconciled to God? If you have, you sure need to recognize the pricelessness of this gift that God has given you. Reconciliation is not a cheap piece of cosmetic art, brothers and sisters. It's a priceless treasure that you can't buy with all the money in the world. Have you been reconciled to God by trusting Jesus Christ as your only hope. This is God's eternal word. Let all who agree with it say amen this morning.